Good evening, everyone. I'm Lynn from the Institute of Policy Studies, and welcome to the second series of the IPS Northern Lectures. This series is by Ambassador Bilahari Kausikan, the 2015-16 SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Now, today's program will begin with a lecture by the Ambassador, followed by a Q&A of 50 minutes. If you want to take a moment to look at where the, mic, the standing mics are placed in the room, um, please line up behind the mics to ask a question during the Q&A. If you require any assistance, please raise your hand and uh, a member of IPS staff will come and speak to you. Um, we're also filming tonight's lecture and the video is going to be on the IPS YouTube page early next week. And so may I now invite the director of IPS, Janadas Divan, to say a few words. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second IPS Northern Lectures. As the name of the lecture series indicates, it was named to honor um, Singapore's sixth and longest serving president and for his many contributions to public service. Formerly called the SR Northern Fellowship for the Study of Singapore, it's a very long name, um, it was established to fund uh, further research into and promote greater academic discourse on Singapore's centric issues and public policy. We raised about $6 million, that includes the matching grant um, from the government to endow the fellowship. And I have to thank individual as well as corporate donors, including those who give to IPS yearly um, uh, as part of the IPS Corporate Associates Program for their kindness and generosity in funding this fellowship. Um, the SR Northern Fellowship, um, as you might know, is tenable for a year, so the fellow um, is, um, holds the fellowship for a year, um, after which we appoint a new fellow. Um, the first fellow, as um, I think um, all of you know, was um, Mr. Ho Kwam Ping and uh, Mr. Bilari Kausikan is the second fellow. Um, I would like to say a few words about um, uh, this year's um, SR Nathan Fellow, for he is, as some of you realize, a much misunderstood man. Uh, um, he is an acquired taste. Um, nobody gets a first impression of him for the simple reason his faults are too obvious. Um, and he makes no attempt to hide them. Indeed, he seems to delight in rubbing his faults in your face. As a result, he has no new friends. Um, all his friends are perforce, like me, old friends and long-suffering. But he does grow on one as one slowly discovers his many good qualities. I assure you, if you don't know him, you will probably like him better at the end of the series of talks than you might at the beginning. As a very senior uh, person in government um, once told me, after he had given Bilahari what I thought was a well-deserved pasting, he told me, despite being angry at Bilahari for something or the other he had done or said, he told me, if I were to ever find myself in a foxhole, there is no one I would rather have beside me than Bilahari. And that's why there is nobody better 
than Bilahari Kausikan to talk about Singapore's foreign policy. This won't be an academic view. His won't be an academic view. His view is from the foxhole. They arise from the crucible of experience. He marshals his thoughts, his thinking, on our foreign policy to do battle for Singapore. And he has done it over his lifetime. He, served, he has served every foreign minister since Rajaratnam, and he has worked with all three of Singapore's prime ministers. And indeed, if you want to know how our founding fathers, the first formulators of, our Singapore, of Singapore's foreign policy, how, not what they thought, if you want to eavesdrop on the conversation between Dr. Go Kengsui, Mr. Rajaratnam, and Mr. Lee Kuan Yew about our foreign policy, there is nobody better to listen to than Bilahari Kausikan. Thank you very much. Janadas was so kind in his introduction because he got an advanced copy of what I was going to say about him. <laughs> and was hoping, I guess, to preempt me. But it's a vain hope, Janadas, sorry. <laughs> anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming this evening, this rainy evening. I'm very grateful to the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and its Institute for Policy Studies for inviting me to deliver the second series of IPS Northern Lectures. It was an honor that I was initially reluctant to accept. But Janadas, true to the reputation of the region from which his ancestors hailed, snookered me. On reflection, however, it was too tempting an opportunity to inflict on you my views on some aspects of foreign policy uh, to forego. Now that mitigates the circumstances that resulted in my standing before you this evening, but does not erase them. So I thank the organization, organizers, but I shall not forget Janadas's favor. And you can take that any way you like. <laughs> well, Singapore is a unique country in many ways. One of our less discussed peculiarities is that although there can be few countries more exposed to and dependent on the international environment than we are, the level of public interest in and understanding of foreign policy is not high. Indeed, I sometimes think of us as rather parochial. And I must confess that for much of my career as a foreign service officer, I found it convenient to practice my trade without the distraction and complications of public attention that bedevil the diplomats of other countries. But I have, since, I have since come to the conclusion, and not just because I have now safely retired with no executive responsibilities, that this is not only unsustainable, but undesirable. Our domestic politics are becoming more complex. A more educated electorate is demanding a greater voice in policy. And it's only a matter of time that this will include foreign policy. 
This is not necessarily a bad thing since successful foreign policy must ultimately rest on a firm domestic consensus of shared assumptions. Such a foundation does not yet exist in Singapore. In its absence, foreign policy is being drawn into the arena of partisan politics in ways that could be kindly called naive, but I think is more accurately described as irresponsible. We will increasingly need the balance of an informed and realistic public understanding of foreign policy to keep us on a safe course. At present, debates over domestic policies, more often than not, take place devoid of context, as if what we do on this tiny island can be entirely insulated from what is happening around us, or as if we have an entirely free hand to do as we please. This can be dangerous. At very least, it leads to the loss of a sense of proportion when discussing domestic policies. And Singapore is in a paradoxical situation. Too many of our compatriots, particularly of the scribbling and chattering classes, that is to say our intelligentsia, <laughs> sometimes seem almost ashamed of being Singaporean, whereas we are quite often the object of admiration and emulation by foreigners. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not arguing that our policies are beyond criticism. Far from it. Without criticism, we cannot improve. And of course, we should take the praise of foreigners, even when sincere, with a large dose of salt. But criticism must be informed by what is and is not possible for a small country situated in a complicated and often dangerous region. In a globalized world, there is no domestic policy that is not, at least to some degree, influenced by the external environment. It's unfortunate that too often foreigners seem more aware of the constraints under which Singapore labors and hence can better appreciate what we have been able to do despite our constraints. Singapore improbably survived and prospered over the last 50 years in no small part because of the ability of our founding generation of leaders to understand the world in which we found ourselves unexpectedly independent and to devise policies that enabled us to mitigate the dangers. I have spoken elsewhere of the vulnerabilities of small states and the principles our founding leaders established that enabled us to mitigate them and which still guide our foreign policy. My views on these matters are already on public record and I do not intend to repeat myself. Instead, I will in this and subsequent lectures sketch in broad strokes the changes in the external environment that we will face going forward, the strategic challenges that this will pose, and consider the extent to which we are prepared to meet them. But first, a word or two about an aspect of foreign policy that I believe is not sufficiently understood. Its relationship to my subject, the overall subject of my series of lectures, may not be immediately obvious, but please bear with me because I hope to make its relevance clear to those of you hardy enough to stay the course 
to the end of this series of lectures. Now, a successful foreign policy must take the world as it is and not mistake hopes for reality. This requires a clinical, indeed cold-blooded, assessment of our external environment. And this is not easy. Information is almost always incomplete. Obfuscation, if not downright deception, is a given. And humans are unique in their innate propensity to deceive themselves. In my experience, the poorer sort of diplomat is somewhat more prone to self-deception than other members of the human species. Perhaps, you know, being called excellency all the time doesn't necessarily make you excellent. <laughs> but there is a more fundamental problem. Foreign policy deals with sentient beings that act and react with each other, and the very effort to understand our environment changes what we are trying to understand. This makes the human, the political, the social world, which includes the realm of foreign policy, different from the material world that conforms the laws of physics. A rock is a rock and will forever be only a rock. But human relations, including international relations, are constantly shifting kaleidoscope of unpredictable patterns of possibilities. The result is complexity, complexity that if not entirely unfathomable, is at least difficult for the human mind to grasp in a holistic way. Of course, we cannot live in a state of perpetual perplexity. We cannot live in a state of perpetual doubt. And foreign policy cannot be made by hamlets. To deal with complexity, we, whether consciously or not, resort to mental frameworks to simplify reality in order to comprehend it, in order to act. Simplification must result in some degree of distortion. And since we all do not choose to use the same frameworks, we do not all see or experience anything in exactly the same way. Moreover, all these frameworks, international law, international organization, international community, all the concepts we use to try to make sense of international relations, indeed the very notion of international relations itself, are essentially human artifacts that have little autonomous existence beyond what we invest in them by choosing to believe in their utility. And since we do not all share the same beliefs, and what we believe changes, they are all at best only partially and contingently true. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the point. We cannot just live happily in our own private worlds. In practice, there is usually a great deal of consensus among states on the basic premises and frameworks of international relations. And there are physical realities that prescribe the range of mental frameworks that we can rationally choose for, to believe in. For example, uh, one physical reality is that Singapore is a small country, not a continent. Another is that we are located in Southeast Asia, not the South Pacific. The human world does not quite have the same status as the material world, but nevertheless has its own insistent reality that we ignore only at our peril. Nevertheless, there is always some measure of choice, not always conscious, involved in the selection 
of what frameworks to use. Thereby arises the possibility of error. Human nature being as it is, it's seductively easy to believe that our choices, our ideas, must be immutable facts that brook no alternatives. And the highly educated and the highly intelligent are more prone to this kind of error. Adam Smith is credited with the observation that, and I quote, the learned give up the evidence of their senses to preserve the coherence of the ideas of their imagination. End quote. When this occurs, when the gap between our mental frameworks and reality grows too wide, the results are not pretty. After the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the US Federal Reserve, confessed that his intellectual assumptions of a lifetime had been shaken and he was still trying to understand what happened. He has since written a book to explain why economic forecasters, like himself, I guess, failed so miserably. I haven't read it, so I don't know his conclusions. But it is not my impression that the market fundamentalism and the political dysfunctionalities that were clearly among the factors responsible for the financial crisis, it's not my impression that they have gone away. It's a cliche, but nonetheless true, that the hardest thing to change is a mind. And I believe the world is now at greater risk of this kind of error. We are in a phase of greater than usual international uncertainty. The proximate cause was the end of the Cold War. President Putin of Russia is notorious, at least notorious in the West, for describing the collapse of the Soviet Union as the major geopolitical disaster of the century. Now, in human terms, for former Soviet citizens, particularly ethnic Russians, whose psychological bearings were cast adrift overnight, many of whom found themselves trapped in the often hostile environments of newly independent former Soviet republics, this was no more than a statement of fact. But you don't have to be infected with nostalgia for the glories, real or imagined, of the Soviet past, or sentimental about the Cold War, to appreciate Mr. Putin's comment on other grounds. For almost half a century after the end of the Second World War, our fundamental understanding of the world, the basic mental framework that all states held in common, was the Cold War. It established the essential processes of international relations for us all. And irrespective of which side of the ideological divide we stood, and even if we tried to steer clear of either side by a policy of non-alignment, which, incidentally, was always for the majority of the movement more pretense than real, the Cold War prescribed the parameters of the possible for us all with a stark and brutal clarity. Despite its dangers, and they were great, the Cold War had one virtue, a clearly defined structure. The very danger gave the structure sharp resolution. And clarity and danger created order. The early Cold War saw several US-Soviet crises in the Caribbean, over Cuba, Berlin, and the Middle East. 
but direct superpower confrontation soon proved too dangerous. And by the mid-60s or so, their competition largely manifested itself through proxies in peripheral regions where defeat or victory engaged no vital interests of the superpowers. The result was what some scholars have called the long peace. This was, of course, peace between the superpowers. It was not very peaceful for those callous, reckless, foolish, or unfortunate enough to become proxies. But for prudent and lucky states on the periphery, and prudence creates its own luck, there was never very much doubt about how to position ourselves within the Cold War structure to avoid getting entangled in superpower proxy wars and perhaps obtain some modest advantage from their rivalry. And Singapore was among those states. That clarity of choice is gone and it will not be recreated. We now have danger, although of a lesser magnitude, without clearly defined structure. No one really knows what will or can replace the Cold War structure. It has been a quarter of a century, thereabouts, since the Berlin Wall came down and the USSR imploded. Yet we can only define our times by reference to the age that preceded it. We still call this, after 25 years, the post-Cold War. We live in an age without definition. There was a brief post-Cold War moment when one country seemed to hold all the levers of the world in its hands. The western side of the Cold War structure was entirely an American creation. The US and the Soviet Union both claimed to embody universal values. So once the latter was discredited and the, its Cold War structure dissolved, there seemed no alternative to American-led institutions, American power, American values, and American ideas. History had ended. The economic analog was the great moderation, whereby the genius of American economists had reduced the complexity of economic systems and human behavior to neat mathematical formulas and harnessed the market to once and for all tame the business cycle. But of course, by the end of the first decade of the 21st century, these delusions were dispelled by failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the near meltdown of Wall Street. Barack Obama rode the backlash into the White House. The general view regards his election as the vindication of American values, perhaps. But I take the contrarian view that the very improbability of Mr. Obama's election reflects disillusionment with the post-Cold War definition of American values and a groping after a different and more authentic definition. And this at least in part explains the resonance of Obama's campaign slogan of change. But expectations were so high that he was almost bound to disappoint. And the unseemly spectacle of the current Republican primary campaign suggests that the search for a new definition is still ongoing with a more hysterical tone. Now, without global structure, global leadership is diffused. 
Without global leadership, many urgent international issues, take your pick, you know, anything from climate change to proliferation to refugees to pandemics and, and, and more, will be left unresolved or dealt with only suboptimally, enhancing the uncertainties. And by the time of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, it was clear that the brave new post-Cold War world order had not turned out quite as orderly as, George, as President George H.W. Bush, who had confidently proclaimed it, had expected, and that existing international institutions were inadequate to cope with such new types of crises. So, so enter the G20. At the Pittsburgh G20 summit in 2009, President Obama announced that the G20 would replace the G8 as the premier forum for international economic cooperation. The significance of his statement went beyond finance and economics. In effect, he was acknowledging that the American-led post Cold War structure could not be the sole basis of a post-Cold War global structure. The G20 was thus heralded by some as a sign that the brief post-Cold War unipolar moment had been replaced by multipolarity. Now that term, multipolarity, is imprecise, but insofar as multipolarity implies a rough symmetry of power between different poles. This is not a multipolar world, and it is far from clear that it will become a multipolar world in the, in the foreseeable future. Despite its manifold problems, the US is still at the pinnacle of the international hierarchy in almost every dimension of power, and is likely to remain there. If there is multipolarity, it exists only at the regional level. The US, the US is still the only truly global power, but it is also a power whose limits are now evident. My friend Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group has described the contemporary global order as G0. It's a striking metaphor but insofar as this conveys the image of a formless world, it overstates the case. The American order may be fraying at its edges and inadequate, but it has not disappeared. The G20 has proved useful, but only within narrow and specialized parameters. The G20 coexists in a not entirely coordinated fashion with the UN system and the Bretton Woods institutions. The UN, the World Bank, the IMF, and other, and other such institutions all still have their uses. But all are also to some degree dysfunctional, sometimes by design, sometimes because their original design was conceived under very diff different historical conditions after the Second World War. None is likely to be significantly reformed, at least in my judgment. We do not face a blank slate to write with thereon whatever we please. And this poses a different kind of challenge. As the only truly global power, US leadership is irreplaceable. But it clearly cannot now exercise leadership alone. 
This is not new. The U.S. did not exercise leadership alone during the Cold War. It had helped. But without the strategic imperatives of the Cold War, there is now no compelling reason for other major powers, U.S. allies included, to accept U.S. leadership except on an ad hoc and partial basis, which adds the uncertainties again. There is also no compelling reason for the American people to continue to shoulder the burdens and sacrifices of leadership alone. But which country or group of countries has the capacity to or is inclined to provide sustained help to the US? Europe, the transatlantic alliance was of course the major pillar of the Western Cold War structure. But the end of the Cold War has deconstructed the idea of the West and made explicit what was once implicit nuances between European values and American values. The most liberal American, and I use the term liberal in its American sense of willingness to use state power to shape domestic economic and social outcomes, the most liberal American is less liberal or is less interventionist than the most conservative European. And I again use the term conservative in its American sense of being for a minimalist state. Now these differences by themselves could conceivably be managed. But Europe is now also tangled in knots of its own making and has neither the energy nor the appetite to take on global responsibilities. Although for reasons of armor prop, it occasionally pretends to do so, not always with happy results. At the very heart of the post-Cold War European idea is a fundamental contradiction. The EU was conceived of as a post-nationalist construct. Ironically, it was inspired by nationalist fears of a superior nationalism, Germany. Germany is larger than any other European state. After Bismarck united Germany in the 19th century, the so-called German question led to two world wars. It resurfaced in 1989 after the respite of Cold War division. A reunited Germany was to be tamed by the pooling of sovereignties, the centerpieces of which were the common European currency and the Schengen Agreement. But the ambition once launched soared way beyond Germany. Europe as a community of values was intended to be a new kind of global power. There was to be a new and superior pan-European identity based on the ideal of universal rights and a generous social model. This was as much a delusion as the communist dream of creating a new socialist man. Nationalism cannot be wished away. The instinct to define oneself by distinguishing like from the other is an intrinsic and primordial part of human nature. And any political project undertaken in defiance of human nature is bound to eventually fail. In this respect, the EU stands as a prime example of the futility and danger of letting mental frameworks, however appealing or noble, outrun reality. European elites deeply believe in their utopian vision of Europe 
and the elite answer to any obstacle to the realization of this vision has generally been more Europe. The man, but the man in the street, the row, the strasser, or the carré, clearly does not agree with his enlightened betters, and we are now witnessing the denouement of the internal contradictions of the post-Cold War European idea. The rise of extreme right-wing neo-fascist anti-EU movements is one manifestation. The Eurozone crisis is another. Was it ever realistic to expect Greeks to behave with the fiscal discipline of Germans? Cultural differences, the social norms they generate, and ultimately the different conceptions of the good life do matter. But these are not the worst consequences of the divergence between ideal and reality. I have never made a secret of my skepticism about the wilder boundaries of the European idea. In response, a European friend, and um, contrary to the belief of some, I do have several European friends, uh, urged patience. It may take another generation or more, he said, but we will get there. Already young Europeans have embraced the idea of Europe far more enthusiastically than their parents or grandparents, he argued. Good. Who are these young Europeans, I asked? Are they all middle class, white, employed, at least nominally Christian or secular? He changed the subject. <laughs> Too many non-white Muslim Europeans face discrimination, ghettoization, and disproportionately high levels of unemployment, making them, in effect, a class of untermensch. Is it too fanciful to think that the divergence between the lofty European ideal and the grim reality they experience makes them susceptible to radicalization? Well, the Paris attacks and those in London before that were carried out by such second generation or sometimes third generation Europeans. And the flood of Middle Eastern refugees and illegal immigrants can only exacerbate the situation. Now, don't misunderstand me again. I take no joy in Europe's travails. In our own interests, in Singapore's interests, we must hope that Europe sorts itself out as soon as possible. But this requires a scaling down of ambition to close the gap between ideal and reality. Among other things, this must entail acceptance of a more sustainable social model, some form of fiscal regime policed by Berlin, and above all, a painfully wrenching redefinition of European values and the meaning of being European. It won't be easy. Things will probably have to get worse, and there will be many a futile gyration to evade reality before the inevitability of change is accepted. The result will be a different and hopefully a more humble Europe. Certainly not one that can offer an alternative global vision. A common security and foreign policy, if not abandoned entirely, is unlikely to remain more than a pious aspiration. Consider the record. Europe bungled in the Balkans, bungled in North Africa, and its fecklessness was a major cause of the crisis in Ukraine. Rather than Europe rendering help to the US, it was the US that pulled Europe's chestnuts out of all these fires on Europe's own borders. From 1989 to 2014, 
the defence budgets of all EU members except Estonia stagnated or declined. Terri and these figures are from SPIRI, a European, uh, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Terrorist threats and a resurgent Russia notwithstanding, I do not expect significant increases in European defence budgets. Soft power is no substitute for hard power. You cannot have the former if you do not have the latter, and contemporary Europe simply cannot afford to be a global geopolitical force. America's East Asian allies, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Australia and New Zealand, can at best help mainly in their own region and only sporadically elsewhere. And even in East Asia, as I will explain in a subsequent lecture, they are being subjected to powerful new forces that threaten to conscribe what they can do. So much for that. Can the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa help? I doubt it, at least not in any significant way. First of all, let's not forget that the term BRICS was first coined by a fund manager as a marketing slogan designed to part the unwary from their money and not as a geopolitical concept. Since then, much of the luster has worn off these emerging markets and while the BRICS now hold regular summits and other meetings, have established a secretariat of sorts, and there is even a BRICS bank, it is still not a self-evidently viable geopolitical concept. Not very much unites the BRICS except the desire for greater recognition of their status. Their ambitions are contradictory, or I think will eventually prove contradictory. Does China support India's aspiration to become a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council? Moscow and Beijing now insistently profess partnership, perhaps too insistently. But can Chinese and Russian ambitions in Central Asia really be reconciled? Well, what coherence the BRICS have as a group is provided by their economic links with China, which trades and invests more with each of the others than the rest do with each other, and China's central role in this group is not regarded by the others without some ambivalence. In any case, Brazil and South Africa play only relatively limited regional roles, which are not uncontested by others in their own regions. Russia is a dissatisfied power, still smoldering with resentment at the loss of superpower status. Its main motivation is to prove that it still matters, particularly in its near abroad. And the story of, Euro of American and European relations with Russia in the 1990s was one of squandered opportunity. In the immediate post-Cold War period, the US and Europe made a serious strategic mistake by treating post-Soviet Russia condescendingly as a defeated country. And Moscow believes not without justification, that promises made at the end of the Cold War were not honoured because it was weak. Now, it's, in economic and demographic terms, Russia is on a long-term downward trajectory. Still, for now, it has the political will and sufficient muscle to demonstrate that its core interests, as in Ukraine and Syria, 
cannot be disregarded with impunity. Russia is not irrational and will cooperate with the West when its interests dictate it should. But it has no viable new global vision and is not in a position to exercise a global geopolitical role, except a global geopolitical role, except in a formal diplomatic sense as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Unlike Russia, India is not a dissatisfied power. India, independent India has always had a global vision of itself. But that very vision has made it wary of playing any other major power's game. Acutely conscious of its ancient civilization, it certainly will not play deputy to the US sheriff, but seek an independent role. Does India's capability match its vision? Not yet. India is reforming, its long-term prospects are good. Prime Minister Modi clearly wants to change India. But change does not come quickly to a subcontinental-sized country where each constituent state is practically a country unto itself. And notwithstanding its global vision, governing a vast, bewilderingly complicated democracy will always absorb most of any Indian government's energies. India more naturally looks inwards than outwards. In practice, India's main external preoccupation is Pakistan, perhaps too much so, but understandably, given their history and Pakistan's long-standing ties with China. India fought and lost a brief but traumatic war with China in 1962. Its illusions of China-India brotherhood shattered, India then spent decades trying its best to ignore China, interacting only at the margins. It no longer has that luxury, but still does not quite know how to deal with China, and so eyes it warily for flirting with China's other Asian rival, Japan. But despite the apparent coincidence of strategic interests, a coincidence of interests promoted or at least hyped by their current prime ministers, I cannot think of two more mutually incomprehensible Asian cultures than India and Japan. <laughs> this is not a partnership whose closer evolution as part of a new global structure is to be taken as a given. Well, any new global order must have US-China relations as a central pillar. While we are still far from a G2 world, and it is not a foregone conclusion that you will ever be a G2 world. I will deal with US-China relations in detail in a subsequent lecture. For now, suffice it to note only three points. First, US-China relations defy, defy simple characterization. China and the US are clearly not enemies. Neither can they be clearly said to be friends or natural partners. In this respect, US-China relations exemplify one of the most salient characteristics of post-Cold War major power relations, ambiguity. Profound interdependence of a new type coexists with equally profound strategic mistrust. The same is true of EU-Russia relations, Sino-Indian relations, and Sino-Japanese relations. Second, 
The main beneficiary of the Cold War was not the West, however you want to define it, but China. Freed of the constraints imposed by its de facto membership of the US-led anti-Soviet alliance, which it accepted out of necessity, but now still largely a free rider globally, and so without onerous international responsibilities, China has, since the 1990s, been free to single-mindedly pursue its own interests. It has plugged itself more successfully than any other major developing country into the opportunities afforded by post-Cold War globalization, and thus rose with the results we all know. Third, what will China do with its new status and power? That is not so clear, perhaps not even to China's own leaders. As the main beneficiary of the existing order, China has no strong incentive to kick over the table. Neither has it any deep attachment to a system that is heir to the order it holds responsible for what it calls a hundred years of humiliation. Deng Xiaoping advised, hide your strength, bide your time. Has that time now come? I would not rush to any conclusion one way or the other. President Xi Jinping has been more ambitious than any of his predecessors since Mao Zedong in articulating an international vision for China. But it is primarily an East Asian and Eurasian and not a global vision, and the vision lacks detailed resolution. Still more a China dream, not a China plan. Nor has China been consistent in either the articulation of its interests or its actions. Even in East Asia, where Chinese and U.S. interests most directly intersect, I do not believe that either China or the U.S. yet precisely knows what they want from each other, even as they seek a new accommodation with each other. Where does that leave us? The world now finds itself in an indeterminate situation. There is no satisfied country powerful enough to maintain the existing global order by itself. Nor is there any satisfied country that can offer consistent help to maintain the existing global order. There is no country that is simultaneously dissatisfied enough and powerful enough to change the existing global order. And the uncertain interregion that we now find ourselves in is likely to last a long time perhaps decades and not just a few years. Now, why was the promise of a new post-Cold War world order not fulfilled? One key factor was the U.S. attitude in the immediate post-Cold War period, which proved self-defeating and made it more difficult than necessary for other major powers to swallow American leadership. The fundamental error was to misinterpret the meaning of the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, and to confound these related but distinct events. The Soviet Union undoubtedly failed, but did America or the West unambiguously win? What does winning in this context mean anyway? What is the West that allegedly won? In the rush of events, these questions, among others, were insufficiently probed. Almost two years separate the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the US or the West, generally, was not necessarily the key actor. Would the Cold War have ended 
the way it did had Mikhail Gorbachev not been inclined to make the decisions he did with regard to the reunification of Germany and Soviet forces in East Europe. He could have resisted. But arguably, Gorbachev had already concluded that his attempts to reform the Soviet system required the end of Cold War tensions and the Soviet Union collapsed, not because of the end of the Cold War, but despite the end of the Cold War. Gorbachev's reforms have succeeded, as reforms in China's essentially similar Leninist system succeeded. Had Gorbachev's vanity not caused him to foolishly confuse Western flattery for domestic support and pursue glasnost ahead of perestroika, fatally loosening the Communist Party of the Soviet Union's control at a crucial time? And would the Soviet Union have collapsed so suddenly if not for the personal antagonism and rivalry between Boris Yeltsin and Gorbachev and the ambitions of the leaders of the constituent republics of the USSR, particularly the Ukraine? Now, there is, of course, no way of answering these questions definitively, just as there is no way of dis dismissing them entirely, and that is my point. History is replete with contingencies and the consequences of human agency are intrinsically unpredictable and more often limited, and more limited more often than the actors may have thought. The memoirs that President George H.W. Bush co-authored with his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, as well as other studies of the end of the Cold War, make clear that the decision to accept German reunification was not easy. And Chancellor Kohl, in effect, forced the hands of America and its European partners. And from other sources, we now know that the Berlin Wall was breached because a nervous GDR, East German, a nervous East German spokesman bungled an answer at a press conference, and in the resulting confusion, no one knew what to do when hordes of East Germans rushed the wall. Well, sometimes it's as stupid as that. <laughs> in his memoirs, President Bush explicitly said that he was reluctant to force the breakup of the Soviet Union because of his concern about control of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. And in the end, Scowcroft recalled, and I quote, we could actually do very little one way or the other to influence the outcome. Now, this modest judgment was, of course, ex post facto. The memoirs were written when passions had cooled and published eight years after the Soviet Union collapsed. The attitude at the time was very different. In his 1992 State of the Union address, President George H.W. Bush declared, and I quote, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, America won the Cold War. And went on, and he went on to describe a US-centric view of the future. And I quote again, a world once divided into two armed camps now recognizes one sole and preeminent power, the United States of America. And this they regard with no dread, for the world trusts us with power and the world is right. End quote. Wow. Now, naked American triumphalism was given a superficial intellectual gloss by Francis Fukuyama's infamous article in the neoconservative journal, The National Interest, arguing that with America's victory, 
history had ended. History took no notice of Professor Fukuyama's theories <laughs> and went rolling bloodily along, manifesting itself, among other ways, through genocide in Rwanda and vicious wars of ethnic cleansing in the former Yugoslavia. Nothing deterred, the good professor then wrote an entire book, not just an article, insisting that history had indeed ended in the special philosophical sense he meant, but the rest of us were insufficiently erudite to understand or notice. It was not until the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, at least in part inspired by universalist theories such as those he propounded, it's not under, until those wars proved unwinnable that Professor Fukuyama thought it prudent to write yet another book denying that he had ever been a neoconservative. And he has since occupied himself writing hefty tomes on other subjects, and I believe occasionally lecturing at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Now, making fun of the learned is akin to shooting fish in the barrel. <laughs> Not very sporting, perhaps, but too tempting to resist. <laughs> in any case, I can seldom resist the temptation. My purpose this time, however, is a serious one. To illustrate the stubborn persistence of mental frameworks, irrespective of their appropriateness and in defiance of empirical evidence. And despite the accumulated weight of evidence, the universalist impulse still lingers in more invidious ways and continues to have real effects on policy. I have already alluded to the way it was used to justify an ill-considered war to affect regime change in Iraq. The 2003 war shook confidence in American leadership from which America has yet to fully recover. It precipitated a split in the transatlantic alliance and the EU. France and Germany led defiance of America. Blair's Britain enthusiastically embraced the war. Yet the same universalist impulse, lurking under the guise of humanitarian intervention, later led France and some other EU members of NATO into equally ill-considered bombing campaigns to try to change regimes, successfully in Libya, unsuccessfully in Syria, but with dismal results in both cases. If American allies were disquieted, what impact would it have had on countries like China, Russia, India, and in the Middle East and Southeast Asia? I leave you with the question. Inappropriate mental frameworks may not matter very much when the international order is settled. They matter a great deal in times of international uncertainty when basic assumptions are shaken and the global order lacks clear definition. It is in precisely those times when the human mind, discombobulated by too much uncertainty, most desperately and thus uncritically, seeks out frameworks that will give the comfort of familiarity and comprehension in the midst of disorienting flux. Oftentimes, the comfort is illusionary. Contemporary examples are slogans like a new Cold War or Asia Rising, as well as theories like the so-called to Lucidus trap, or a clash of civilizations, or analogies with pre-World War I Europe. I believe they are all at best oversimplifications, at worst dangerous nonsense. The basic strategic challenge facing all of us in times of international uncertainty 
is to position ourselves to preserve the widest range of options and avoid being forced into invidious choices. This is more difficult than the basic Cold War challenge of choosing wisely. When the international structure lacks clear definition, when major power relationships defy simple characterization, and the major powers are themselves groping towards new accommodations with each other, we have no firm landmarks from which to take bearings, and we can only navigate with reference to our own assessments. And if our assessments are based on false frameworks, we might well mistake rocks and shoals for safe passage. Ladies and gentlemen, I've tried your patience for too long this evening, so let me conclude with a brief summary of what I've tried to achieve and what I hope to do in coming months. Today I've made a very broad, but I hope not too rambling and superficial survey of the international situation as I see it and the basic strategic challenge that arises from it. I intend to use the rest of the lectures in this series to examine some aspects of the international situation in detail. And as you may have surmised from examples, from the examples of false frameworks that I listed, my focus will be on Asia, specifically East Asia, although I intend to make passing references to other regions as well. My next lecture will be on US-China relations and will touch on Sino-Japanese relations and on India as well. The lecture after will deal with our own region, Southeast Asia, and the effects of US-China and other major power relations on ASEAN. The fourth lecture will examine the dominant Western framework, the alleged universality of certain values and political forms, which in my view is not mis merely misleading, but possibly dangerous. The final lecture will return home to discuss Singapore's readiness to cope with all these complexities. Once again, thank you for your patience. Quite a wide-ranging talk, as you said at the conclusion. Um, we have about, say, 30 minutes for questions. Um, there are three mics in between um, the in the rows in between the blocks. We have the first question. If you're uh, uh, Gillian. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, can I just invite you um, to be a bit more self-critical about our own region? I know you said that you'll uh, Wait talk for about. The third lecture. Hmm? Yeah, I know you said you. Yeah, you I might you... Say it now, uh, I've got to think <laughs> of something new to say then. <laughs> Ask another question, Julian. Come on. No. <laughs> Is it completely illusory that we, we try and aim towards a ASEAN economic community and things like that? What? What were, the Ill, what were the false assumptions that people made, or is there some clear strategic value to that? Just give us the heads okay. up on lecture three. Okay, Thank you. You, you have to use the mic. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been accused of having a soft voice before. <laughs> the basic and essential and enduring purpose of ASEAN 
is to enable the small states of Southeast Asia and the biggest of us, and indeed all of us combined, are small compared to the major powers. It's to enable us to retain some measure of autonomy in the midst of great power competition. First in the Cold War context, and now in a post-Cold War context, which as I've tried to say, is a bit more complicated than actually the Cold War context. In a sense, everything we do, including these community building efforts, is a means towards their end. At least they are as important as a means as they are as ends in itself. Now, community is probably too loaded a term to really describe what we are after because, and we adopted the term from the EU at a time when the EU's feet of clay were not so evident. Uh, because community implies supranationality and that's not on anybody's agenda in any of the community pillars except in a very, very limited way in the dispute settlement mechanism of the ASEAN economic community. That mechanism has never been tested and I suspect will never be tested. Okay. We have now reached, well, wait, one, one, I, think, wait, I now come to your point. We now reach one phase, one end of one phase of the economic integration project. We have not done badly, but the goals were modest. So we could declare victory with certain, for this phase with some credibility. Problem is what we do next. Uh, what we do next, we have done all the easy things, you know. So what we do next is going to be more difficult. And some of the complexities that I have described are going to play into this, as well as complexities within individual ASEAN member states. Now that's enough. Beyond that, I will have to think again what I'm going to say in the third lecture, and it's a pain. Yes, please. Somebody from... You wanted to ask a question on that side? Okay. So reflex action. Yes, please. <laughs> Just to second, Ambassador, thank you. Just to second um, the earlier question, um, I have a, a query regarding, you know how, I'm not sure if you read it, but maybe most perhaps you would have already done so. Um, you know how Professor Kisho Mabubani wrote um, a book on, in regards to the new Asian hemisphere. Huh? Um, and he, there's a great emphasis that there is a shift towards the East, the power. Um, so, I mean, with regards to that, is that evident that something's happening with regards to the, you know, the reclamation works with South China Sea, um, that China is really gaining power in that area? Um, again, you are going to make me uh, have to think again if I answer that question in detail, which, which I'm not prepared to do. I will just say this. It is very clear that China is rising. I mean, you have to be blind, deaf, and dumb, and you know, living on a different dimension not to see that. <laughs> uh, it is the latest phase of a process that began with the Meiji Restoration in Japan. <laughs> to that extent, Kishore is right. To every other extent, I disagree with him. And that's enough for now. <laughs> Wait for the third lecture. <laughs> third lecture is... Uh, second lecture and third lecture. I'll deal with both of, uh, bits of your question with the on US-China relations, and when I talk about Southeast Asia. Or oh, with Kishore? Well, I'm not going to talk about him explicitly. Oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> enough people talk about him, so why should I add to it? <laughs> yes, please. Somebody behind as well. Uh, from your lecture earlier, I got the sense that for 
we did quite well, maybe in the last 30, 50 years, yeah. in terms of foreign policy. Yeah. And maybe you can give a little bit more context in the sense that we were relatively a weaker country, small state, yeah. that did relatively well in the last 50 years. And we are stronger and hopefully better now. But actually the environment has changed so much that if we are not careful, we may do worse than what we used to. Thank you. Well, I entirely agree with you. We are, when we became unexpectedly independent, we didn't even have a foreign ministry. We had no idea of foreign policy. We, we had some experience in other aspects of uh, governance, but not foreign policy because we never expected to be independent. In fact, even when I joined the foreign ministry in 1981, it was an utter mess. The entire political division of the foreign ministry was about, I can't remember exactly, maybe 20 people. And that's about the size of one of our divisions, say, dealing with Northeast Asia or Southeast Asia now. And none of us had any clue what the hell to do. There's this story that Mr. Rajaram told us that just after we were kicked out of Malaysia, there was a press conference that he had to give as the new foreign minister. And he asked Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, what shall I say? And the back came the answer, just wear a tie, Raja, you'll think of something. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, we are much better prepared now. <laughs> Can't be worse prepared. <laughs> <laughs> but as you yourself pointed out, and I entirely agree, the nature of the challenges has changed. The nature of Singapore has changed. And while I am not pessimistic, uh, I think we have to be aware of the changes and the challenges in order to deal with them. But that's the last lecture. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador. I thought carefully about a question that you may not cover in the future lectures. Okay. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, we'll see. Uncertainty, right? Um, is this something that you used to worry about that you're not worried about anymore? If not, that's okay, because there's a second part. Is there something that you think everyone's worried about right now that you are not worried about? I'm uncertain what your question is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think, I, okay, let me answer what I think you are getting at, all right? And if I, I got it wrong, sorry. Huh? A small state must worry all the time about everything. We call it being kiasu. <laughs> and, and sometimes kiasi. <laughs> but being kiasu and kiasi is not a bad thing if you are a small country. Because the consequences of mistakes, the consequences of being complacent uh, can be quite drastic. What I worry about is people not worrying. <laughs> and there are signs of that. People taking things for granted. And in fact, entering into the political discourse that sometimes masquerading as an academic debate, that we are not so vulnerable after all. That, oh, we didn't start from such a, a, a small base. You know, we were quite developed in 1965. 
yeah, we were more developed in 1965 than many other countries, but, but there are many other countries that were more developed than us, and look at them now. <laughs> Some are in this region, but since I'm still to be supposed to be a diplomat, I shall forbear from uh, <laughs> mentioning them. <laughs> uh, so that worries me a lot. Now, what other people are worried about that I am not worried about, I don't know because I am not clairvoyant. I cannot read other people's minds. <laughs> so I'll stop there. Ambassador, I know, I mean, it's quite legendary, your discomfort with academics, but now you're a thought leader already by sitting on that stage. So I would like That's to challenge you. you know? and for Ambassador, no. So I want to challenge you. What would be the some of the fundamental tenets of a Bilahari school of international relations? <laughs> Bilahari school of thought of international relations. There is no, my fundamental tenet is not to have any school. <laughs> because once you have a school of thought, you are trapped in one framework and you are going to be in deep trouble. By the way, I am not against academics in general. I once almost became one which is probably a close shave for both the university and for me. <laughs> okay. I am against stupid academics. In fact, I'm against stupid people in general. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the person wanted to ask a question just now. Somebody yeah, yeah somebody behind you, actually. But never mind, you go, you go first. Oh, okay. uh, well, I think was that, no. <laughs> Never mind, go okay, ahead. Go, yeah. You go first. Okay, uh, Ambassador, I have a very simple question. That's the worst kind. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, 1989, fall of Berlin Wall. Uh, was MFA scared shitless, or do you think, hey, opportunity? 1989, I think we, like everybody else, were caught by surprise. Yeah. Uh, we had no idea uh, what would happen next. It was clear that one worry, <laughs> a constant mm. worry during the mm. Cold War, was over. Uh, it was clear that one manifestation of the Cold War that preoccupied my generation of foreign service officers and within which we learned our trade, which was the Vietnamese Vietnam. occupation and uh, uh, invasion and occupation of Cambodia, was coming to an end. Uh, but we had no clue what would happen next. And I don't think we were alone <laughs> in that. Um, and in fact, in retrospect, in hindsight, it's not that we were so damn clever, huh? It was just that we were clueless. In retrospect, it was probably better to be clueless than to be overconfident, as I have tried to, uh, in, in understanding what, or thinking what you understood what was going on, as I tried to explain in this evening's lecture. Uh, for a small country, in fact, for even for a big country, foreign policy is always very largely a series of improvisations. Uh, that's true for a big country, but big countries take more convincing that is so. I have never understood why some people are, are fixated with this idea of grand strategy. Grand strategy is, to my mind, a very abstract concept that really depend, uh, has very little relationship to what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. You cannot predict the future with any great certainty. For a small country, you don't even have the illusion that some big countries have that you can control events to the nth degree. So all you can do is improvise. And that's what we did before, and that's what we did after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and that's what we do right now, and we will continue to do. 
My worry, to go back to an earlier question, is that complacency and certain other factors which I will deal with in the last lecture uh, may, if we are not careful, erode the nimbleness of mind and policy that improvisation to a rapidly changing world requires. You've been waiting patiently, yes. Thank you, Ambassador. My question was, in your opinion, what role would energy and water play in shaping foreign policies in the future? I didn't get that. What role does energy and, foreign and water play in shaping uh, foreign policy in the future? Well, these are very basic factors. I, I can tell you they are basic factors. The, the fact that the U.S. is no longer totally dependent on, uh, on Middle East oil is a big factor. It doesn't mean you can ignore the Middle East because many of the U.S. Uh, friends and allies are still dependent on Middle East oil. Is certainly going to shape events in a certain way. Hmm. Now, I wonder, I mean, this is all total speculation. Obviously, the universalist ideologies were uh, one factor in the way the U.S. and, in fact, the West generally uh, perceived the Arab Spring, Spring and responded to it. The hesitation over supporting Mubarak or not, that was one factor. Uh, I often wonder, and there's no way of proving it one way or the other, would they have been, would they have dithered that much, though, if... Saudi. If the... If the, if the um, if the energy factor had not already begun to shift mm. substantially by that time. The Middle East is still the primary source of China energy. China now relies on the Fifth Fleet and Seventh Fleet to protect its energy supply routes. Mm. <laughs> really, it's a free, that's one of the free riding things. Now this is unsustainable for a major power to, re to rely on another major power to protect something as vital as energy. So China is going to develop a blue water navy. Will that be a factor of cooperation? Because in principle, they have the same interests, US and China. Is it going to be a factor of US-China cooperation? Or is it going to be a factor of US-China competition? How will it affect other powers like Japan and uh, India? I don't know, but it will affect. And I'll try to do some of this speculation in some of the other lectures. Water is obviously a very vital thing. Uh, it is now no longer a secret because the former uh, head of the Malaysian Armed Forces wrote about it, in, uh, in a, uh, or spoke about it in an interview, and I have quoted him on several occasions. He said that Lee Kuan Yew had once told him that if anybody tried to interfere with our water supply from Johor, he would move the SAF in. <laughs> and that kept the Malaysians honest, <laughs> as far as water is concerned. And you can, it, it's not, maybe not such a vital factor anymore, although it's certainly still vital, because we have it within our means to become self-sufficient in water, but it is cer certainly going to be a factor in other parts of the world. China has plans to build at least 11 dams on, in the upper reaches of the Mekong. 
What does that mean? It means it gives them, at least potentially, a hold on five ASEAN countries that rely on the Mekong for their water source. Now, I'm not saying China is going to use it to squeeze them. I don't know. Probably the Chinese themselves don't know at this point of time. And of their 11, I think four or five are already built or substantially built. And Laos is also building dams. And the Chinese built a dam for Utopia in the upper reaches of the Nile, <laughs> which is causing immense problems and angst on the downstream states. And you can go on for that. Water is a scarce resource. What will the ultimate, how will it play out, I can't tell you right now. I can speculate here and there, but you can only say, yes, energy is going to be a major uh, factor. Water is going to be a major factor. There was somebody right at the back. You may have been referring to a greater long-term danger, which is as a result of global warming, melting of the snow yeah. in the Tibetan plateau. And, yeah. um, well, you stop having continuously flowing rivers. Yeah, you're going mm -hmm. to have, I mean, that's a much longer-term thing. Both right? in the Ganges and yeah. the, uh, in the Mekong Delta. Hi, Ambassador. Thank you for your sharing just now. I have a question. What do you think of the current caliber of uh, foreign service officers in MFA to advance Singapore's interests compared to those of your time? Thank you. Uh, they are much better than us. And uh, frankly, with the, the selection process, if I had applied today, I don't know whether I got in, you know. <laughs> uh, but they were quite more desperate then. Uh. No, I think the younger officers are of a better quality than the people I used to work with. And, and I say that very carefully because I don't want to insult the people I used to work with. But you see, we became unexpectedly independent. We just took people, a lot of people who could basically put two sentences in English together uh, and suddenly said, you are foreign service officers. Uh, they didn't have much of a choice. Many, some of them cope very well, some of them not so well. Now we have a very elaborate selection process uh, and the result is the younger officers are better. There is one difference though which is very hard to make up for. Because we were so small then, we all had to do every damn thing. And we had to do it at a very young age without too much preparation and it was either you learn to swim or you sink. Now we have a better formal preparation process for our young officers, but we are a much larger organization, so they see a smaller and smaller, a small slice, smaller slices of our foreign policy, and they deal with smaller slices than say I did. I, when I joined, I was for 40 minutes desk officer of the Middle East, and then the person uh, for whom this series of lectures his name was our permanent secretary, <laughs> and he was reported to me. He said, what? Middle East, give the boy a proper job. <laughs> uh, Middle East policy was not very important. But then I became desk officer of North America. But I did Europe. I did most of my time was spent doing Cambodia. <laughs> I mean, well, so I, and and I, four, four months after I joined, I was sent out with another senior officer to do something uh, in the region. <laughs> that cannot happen today. But it was useful for me. It was very important for me. But we can't do it for our young officers, right? 
We can't go and manufacture crises for our training purposes. You know? <laughs> uh, so the quality is much better. Uh, but the, the formal training is much more methodical. The preparation is better. But they don't get as much hands-on experience because we are a bigger organization. Mm. But I think they will cope. In fact, let me see. I was second permanent secretary and then permanent secretary for almost 13 years. Those cohorts were very good. When we take in two or three cohorts a year, quite large ones, mm. they are very, very good. Much better than the people that joined with me, for example. Some of whom are still around, so I shall forbear from mentioning names. <laughs> and much better. And I was not being falsely modest because we have such an elaborate selection process now. It's not just a question of your grades for university. Uh, we have tests, uh, practical tests, we have psychometric tests. That doesn't work so well because I'm never sure whether they are testing whether you're, you're insane or sane. <laughs> uh, but, but we have elaborate tests. I'm not so sure. It's not false modesty. I'm not sure I could get in these days. <laughs> they would have discovered your math. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody don't. Yeah. Yes. Oh, please. Yes. That's in line with uh, our team, dealing with the um, ambiguous world. So my question may be too outlandish. Uh, in your personal opinion, Sorry? can Singapore, my question is maybe too uh, radical or too outlandish, because it's ambiguous world. Uh, in your personal opinion, do you think that can Singapore or should Singapore forever remain as a sovereign independent country? Because I think that all your serious, the underlying assumption is every year we take our national pledge is Singapore is the independent sovereign country. But is that really possibility could be Singapore may not be that key? Or if that's so, then what your most radical prediction could lead to that result? Maybe the rising sea level? or Singapore willingly to consider the option to take some other form up federation with some other country? Thank you. It's a good question, you know. It's a very good question. Um, certainly, the purpose of our, all our policies, not just foreign policies, should be to keep us a sovereign and independent nation. But that is not to be taken for granted. Now, I don't think our formal sovereignty will be compromised in the sense that somebody invades us, takes us over, you know, that, that kind of thing. I don't think that's very likely. I think we can deal with that, actually. We have a fairly, that's one of the reasons we keep a very strong SAF to deter, to prevent such evil thoughts ever arising in anybody. But that is not the end of the story. Your sovereignty, you can remain formally sovereign, but your sovereignty can be severely compromised. There are now, what, 194 members of the United Nations, something like that. They're all sovereign states. They have a seat in the UN. They have a vote in the UN. They have a flag. But for some of them, too many of them, that's where it ends. They have a seat in the UN, a vote in the UN, and a flag. Their sovereignty is severely compromised because 
they do not have the wherewithal because they are pulled hither and thither either by internal conflicts, sometimes supported by external parties, and there are many other scenarios. I mean, you mentioned rising sea levels, that we can deal with. Even if you've got money, you can build dikes. You know? <laughs> uh, but, but yours is not a, a question. We have to be conscious that your sovereignty is not something to be taken for granted. And to me, the most, the, the most serious threat to our sovereignty is if we lose our social cohesion. Then different parts of your population are going to be pulled in different directions or become beholden to different countries outside uh, Singapore. So it's a very good question. I don't think, I don't take our sovereignty for granted, but I take it as the object of our policy, all policies to keep our sovereignty. Have I answered your question? Thank you, Ambassador. Um, I would like to ask, what do you think of the legitimacy of the Malaysian government? And also following this train of thought, how would the legitimacy of a government affect foreign policy conducted to it by other governments? The legitimacy of the Malaysian government is something for Malaysians to decide, not for me. We will deal with any government in any country that is in power. We are not the moral police. I think we have time for a couple of more questions. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Go Chuming from NUSS. My question is this. We, we are living in Asia, and we heard a lot about the China dream. So my question is, is the China dream something for China, and we wish them a good dream? Or has the rest of the Asia has something to do with the China dream? Well, that you really have to ask the Chinese, not me. <laughs> because frankly, and I'll, I, I alluded to it to the end of the thing, because I'm not sure what the damn China dream is. Uh, and I'm not even sure Mr. Xi Jinping knows what the, the China dream is in detail either. But I will come back, come back next month, and, because I will try to deal with that when I talk about US-China relations. No, I'm not trying to avoid your question. I, I just don't know. Because the China dream is such a broad dream, that there is room for it, for sweet dreams, for nightmares, for, for anything, you know. <laughs> and and, and it's, it lacks that resolution at time. Yeah. One last brilliant question. Anybody? Okay, please, yeah. Uh, thanks, Ambassador. I just got a quick question. So what, what is your personal opinion on uh, young Singaporeans who want to maintain a, like a dual passport, a dual nationality with another country? In, oh. an, in, a, in an increasingly ambiguous world, uh, could Singapore's policy on uh, not allowing joint uh, or dual nationalities be outdated? No, I don't think so. If you had, you, you're not allowed dual nationality, you have to choose. You have to make some kind of commitment one way or the other. So I don't think very much of people who want to hedge like that. Okay. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> um, I hope you, I trust you like him a little better now than at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs>
when is the next? So, uh, thank you, Ambassador, and thank you, Director. Our next lecture with the Ambassador is on 25th February. Um, it's going to be at University Town, and full details will be on the IPS website.